Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. If you can, please open your Bible to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, as John delivers a message titled, Developing a Desire for Purity. Maybe the best way for us to begin is for me to ask you this question. Are you living a pure life? Now think about that. I know that's kind of a heavy question to be asked this early in the morning, but are you living a pure life? and holy life. Now, most of us, when we think about that, if somebody were to ask me that question today, John, are you living a pure life? I think I would probably say, well, I'm probably not living as purely as I should live. I I know I could be more pure or more, more holy, but, you know, in reality, I'm probably doing better or I'm more pure or more holy than some people out there appear to be. I mean, if you look around long enough, you can always find somebody who's worse than you, right? I mean, and so sometimes you say, well, compared to him, I'm doing okay. Compared to her, I'm doing okay. And I think that's somehow how we have this idea of purity in our mind. We compare ourselves to somebody else, and we think, well, I'm doing better than them. I heard about these two brothers who lived in a small East Texas town, and they were scoundrels, man. I mean, they were scandalous guys. They were fighters. They were drunks, they were thieves, they were no good. And everybody in the town knew it. It was a small town. And in time, one of the brothers died. And so the surviving brother, thinking, well, we don't go to church, we don't have a preacher who can do this service, he went down to the Baptist church, a small East Texas town there on the town square. And he went in and met with the pastor. He said, Pastor, my brother has died. We don't know a pastor. We don't have a minister. Is there any way you could speak at his service? And so the pastor agreed to do it. He said, yes, I'll be glad to help you out in this way. And He said, well, pastor, I've never met you before anything. And the pastor thought, no, I've never met you, but I know about your family and your reputation precedes you. And the man said to the pastor, he said, look, if you during the funeral will call my brother a saint, I'll give you $10,000. Would you be willing to do that? The pastor reluctantly took that deal, and he said, yeah, I'll be glad to to call your brother a saint during the service. And so that word got out in town. The man wrote him a check for $10,000, and on the day of the funeral, that small church was packed. And they thought, is this pastor really going to call this scoundrel a saint? And so the service started, the music played, the opening hymn was sung, the pastor came to start his part of the service. And here's what he said. He said, today we have come to remember the life of one of the most evil, wicked, vile, dishonest, good-for-nothing men who ever lived in our town. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) And I I thought, now, you know, that's how we do it sometimes. We think, compared to him, compared to her, I'm not doing that bad. Now, here's the deal. Here's the lesson I want to make at the beginning. We're not supposed to be comparing ourselves to each other. We're supposed to be comparing ourselves to God. If you compare yourself to me, you might say, well, I'm doing better than John. If I compare myself to somebody else, I might say, well, I'm doing better than them. But if we compare ourselves to God, to Jesus Christ, we're going to say, well, compared to him, I have fallen short of God's standard and of God's glory. So you've opened your Bible. In Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse number 1. And Isaiah here is having a vision. 
And he has a vision of heaven, and he has a vision of God. And notice what it says in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Now these seraphim are a special category of angels. And they're around the throne of God. And this is what Isaiah is seeing. And one of these seraphim cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, now a piece of coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. It's forgiven. Your sin has been cleansed. It has been removed. And so as Isaiah, now he's not comparing himself to one of his contemporaries. He's comparing himself to God. And he sees God in all of his holiness and all of his righteousness and all of his perfection. And Isaiah, in seeing God in this exalted position, he becomes aware of his own sinfulness. And what does he say? He say what does he say? He said, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, he didn't just say, you know, I, I'm not as holy as God or, you know, I'm not perfect. He began to identify the specific sin in his life. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, we don't know why he said he was a man of unclean lips. What was it about his lips, his words that would have defiled him? Maybe he had used bad language. Maybe he had told a lie. Maybe he had been rude to somebody. Maybe he had said something he wished he wouldn't have said. And he says then of himself, I am a man of unclean lips. He confessed his sin. And then God dispatches one of these angels from heaven with a piece of coal from the altar, symbolizing the place of purity and holiness. And with that coal, that angel touches the very mouth, the very lips of Isaiah. And at that time, he forgives his sin. And so it says to me, that as we think about it, and this is the first thing in our little outline today, the first thing required in being pure before the Lord. We all want to be pure. We recognize we're not as pure as we should be. But the first thing required in being pure before the Lord is being made pure by God himself. We cannot make ourselves pure before God. We can't be holy without the Holy Spirit. And so we have to confess our sins and receive Christ. The gospel, the message of the Bible, and the message of Jesus Christ in a nutshell is this. Jesus Christ is perfect. We are imperfect. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. Jesus died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. If we, like Isaiah, will confess those sins to God and place our faith in Him, then He will give us his righteousness. We give him our sins. He gives us his righteousness. Theologians call it the great exchange 
We give God, think about that, we give God our sins and He gives us His righteousness. We are forgiven and we are saved. We are, in the eyes of God, positionally righteous. So that today, when God looks at me, God doesn't see all the sins I've committed when I was a teenager or a young adult or in my 20s or 30s or even last week. God doesn't see all those sins. When God looks at me, what does He see? He sees me clothed in, a, in the garment of salvation, covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God looks at me, God sees something you can't see right now. God sees me clothed in Jesus Christ. And if you're saved, that's how God sees you. And we're positionally righteous. And so it, it leads me to say the first thing required in being pure before the Lord is being made pure by God Himself. And if you've never done that, if you've never received God's forgiveness, if you've never exchanged your sin for His righteousness and been saved, after we have been saved, watch this, after we have been made pure, we should have a desire to live a pure life. That is one of the things that should happen after we are saved. We should have a desire to live a, a, a clean life. It only makes sense. Think about this. If, if you've been made clean, you want to stay clean. It's kind of like when you go wash your car. What do you, when you're driving away from the car wash, what, is, what do you inevitably pray? Well, I always say, God, please don't let it rain today. But the point is, if you've washed your car, you don't want it to rain on it. Your car is clean. Like when you go to the dentist, your mouth feels so clean. You don't want to eat for two or three days after that experience, right? You're so clean. Well, when God has forgiven us of our sins and the blood of Jesus has cleansed us, we don't want to do anything that would make ourselves dirty. We want to live a clean and a pure life. Now, as we think about purity, how can we live a pure life? Remember, God makes us pure. But after that happens, he wants us to live pure lives as his sons and as his daughters. There are really three steps to purity, and I want you to think about this. Well, today, we're thinking about a desire. It begins by having a desire to live a pure and a holy life. And then we're going to be thinking about it takes a commitment. It's not enough just to have a desire. We have to make a commitment to God, and we have to say to God, God, with your help, I want to live a pure and a clean and a holy life, and I, I commit myself with your help. I make that commitment to live that kind of life. And then it takes something else. It takes a spirit-led, should say spirit-led, not spirit-lead, a spirit-led, spirit-empowered decision in the moment of temptation. In other words, when we're faced with that temptation, now we've got a desire not to sin, We've made a commitment with God's help to live a pure life. But here is the moment of temptation, whether it's in the sexual area, whether it's in getting in an argument, whether it's in whatever it might be. Here's the moment of temptation, the opportunity to sin, the opportunity to do wrong, the opportunity to do right. In that moment, we have to make a spirit-led, spirit-empowered decision that we will not sin, that we will resist that temptation, that we will say no to that temptation. Now, in your bulletin today, as we're thinking about the desire for purity, I want to just make three observations, and I want to just mention all, all three of these, and then I want to come back this morning and, and really focus on the first one. But let me just mention all of them today. First, the first thing I would say is this. The desire for purity is the proof of your salvation. And I want to come back and, and talk about that more in just a moment. But the desire for purity is proof of your salvation. Now, the second thing I would say is this. The desire itself 
honors the Lord. Now, as I said, we are all sinners. None of us is perfect, and none of us will be perfect until we get to heaven. We won't. There will be times when we sin, and we stumble, and we fall, and we fail. But if you just have a desire to live a pure life before the Lord, did you know that God is pleased with that desire? One of the Beatitudes says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Talking about the desire. doesn't say blessed is the person who's always righteous. I mean, that would be true too. But here Jesus said, if you just have a desire for it, if you just have a hunger for thirst and righteousness, I think about the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. Here's Paul, just like us, saved. He had a desire to live a pure life. He had made a commitment to live a pure life. And yet, sometimes he struggled. And Paul said this. He said, the things I want to do, I don't always do. And the things I don't want to do, sometimes I end up doing those things. And so he's struggling, and he's not perfect. Sometimes he's messing up. Sometimes he's sinning. And yet, the Apostle Paul had that desire in his heart to live a pure life. And so I'm asking you today, do you have that desire? Do you just have a desire in your heart and in your life not to sin? Because the desire itself honors the Lord. And then I would say this about thinking about the desire for purity and the desire for holiness. It is the desire for purity should progressively grow as we mature in our relationship with God. In other words, here's a person who just got saved. They're a babe, they're a baby Christian and they're so excited that to be to be saved. Well, that person has a desire now to please the Lord and, and do what's right, but 20 years from that experience, that desire should, should be more than it was when they first got saved. And I'm sure you've noticed this too. I have in my life. The farther I go in life, the more, a couple of things out, the more I become aware of my own sinfulness and the, the greater desire I have not to sin. I, I think I can say it this way. I have repented of more sins after I got saved than I did when I got saved. Now, why is that? Because the longer we go with God, the more time we spend in the light, the more we become aware of our own sinfulness and of our own shortcomings. And so, that desire should grow. If you've been saved 30 and 40 years, you should have a greater desire for purity than you did when you first got saved. That should grow. The, the, The farther you go with God and the closer you are to God, the more that desire should go. Now, let's go back and just think about today this first thing I've said. The, the desire for purity is the proof of your salvation. Now, you're in Isaiah. Would you go to the New Testament? I want to show you one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a familiar verse, but if you don't have this verse marked in your Bible, I want you to mark it today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 17, and here's what the Bible says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away and all things have become what? All things have become new. And so when we're saved, we are new people in Christ. And the old has gone and the new has come. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this, is this true in me? When a person is saved, everything changes. That person's desire and their desires begin to change. I, think, I was thinking about this last night in my own life. One of the ways... I know that I'm saved. I truly know that I'm saved is because I have a desire to read the Bible and I have a desire to pray. 
Now, some days I, that desire is not as strong as it is at other days. But most every day, I have a desire to read the Bible, and I have a desire to pray. I just, it's just a natural desire. It's one of the ways I know that I'm saved. Another way that I know that I'm saved is that my faith is in Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, the Holy Spirit living on the inside of me, His Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I belong to Him. I, I just, in my heart, there's just, there, I have that witness in the Spirit. I have the inner witness in the Spirit that I belong to Jesus and that I am saved. It's one of the ways I know I'm saved. And one of the ways I know that I'm saved is, is that I have a desire not to sin. Now, I do sin. I sin way more than I wish I did. But I'll tell you this. I have a desire not to sin. And, and, and if you're saved, you're going to have that same desire. You're going to have a desire not to sin. You know, where we are born and, and where we're kind of raised up affects our desires. You know, I was born in Georgia. And so we say, what does that mean, John? It, well, it, it means this, among other things. It means that I have a desire and a love for peaches. <laughs> Why? Because Georgia is the peach state, and I was born there. And so I like peach cobbler, peach pie, peach jelly, peach yogurt, peaches, peaches in my oatmeal, whatever it takes to get that oatmeal down. I like some peaches in there. Peaches. I don't drink tea, but if I did, I'd like peach tea. Peaches. Now... I've lived in Texas so long that this culture has affected me. And now I have a desire not only for pee, I have a desire for tacos and enchiladas and burritos and nachos and all that. But you know what? My desire and my love for nachos has not replaced my love for peaches. Now think about this, what I'm saying. All of us here today, we have been affected by our culture, right? For good and bad. We've been affected by our culture. But if we have ever been born again from heaven, our culture should not change the fact that we have a desire for purity. Think about this. Just like the trademark of Georgia is peaches, the trademark of heaven is purity. And one of the ways that we can know that we have been born from above is that in our hearts there is a hunger, a thirst, a desire to live a life before the Lord that is pleasing and honoring to Him. Not so that He will accept us, but because He already has accepted us and it is our way of thanking Him for receiving us into His family and forgiving us of our sins. And so this desire, if you don't have that desire in your life, for, for holiness and for purity and not to sin. And, you know, I think we could ask ourselves this question. When we do sin, and I, I can't say this enough time, I do sin. But when we sin, how do you feel about that? You know, one of the ways I know I'm saved is because of how I feel after I sin. I feel badly about it. I feel dirty about it. I feel regretful of it. I feel like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that or said that or thought that. I wish I wouldn't have sinned. And I'm glad I feel that way because that is the Holy Spirit living in me and that is His way of, con of convicting me and letting me know that I belong to Him. And let me say this, and this is a strong statement I'm going to make. But if you can sin and not feel guilty about it, not feel shameful about it, not feel badly about it, if you can sin 
and your attitude is no big deal, nobody's perfect, it really doesn't matter, and if you say today, I have no real desire in my heart to live a pure life before the Lord, listen, it is my solemn responsibility to assure you that you're not saved. Because it is impossible to have the Holy Spirit living in your life and not have a desire to live a holy life. Now, that doesn't mean we're always holy, but it means we have that desire to be holy. And it is that desire that pushes us in the direction of holiness. And anybody who can sin, you know, wide open out there and just doesn't even feel badly about it, there's absolutely no way that that person could be saved. One of the things I'm grateful for is that when I do sin, the Holy Spirit convicts me and lets me know that what I have done is wrong. You know, in the life of a believer, are you still listening? Say amen. amen. In the life of a believer, sin should be the exception, not the rule. Sin should be a slip-up, not a lifestyle. And that's what I'm saying. If sin is a person's lifestyle, If sin is their rule, and there's no regret, no remorse, no conviction, then that person has to ask themselves, why not? I mean, how how could I live and do these things and not feel bad? Sin should be a slip-up, not a lifestyle. I was thinking about that late last night, and another illustration came to my mind. Let's play like that. After the holidays, you said, you know, I need to lose some weight. I've gained a little bit, and I need to lose some weight. And put myself on a diet here, and I'm going to try to lose 15 pounds. And I'm going to cut back on carbs, and I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat clean and lean and, and uh, just try to do better, Not, no late-night snacking. And, and you're lo- you've lost three or four or five pounds. You're doing really well. And then one day a friend calls and says, hey, I need to run down to Baybrook Mall and, and exchange some things, and would you like to meet me down there, and maybe we'd shop together and talk together, and so you say, yes, I would. You agree on a time, and there you are, Baybrook Mall with your friend. She re- returns her items, and y'all look in some other department stores down there, and you buy something, and she buys something, and, and uh, you're having a good time, and as you're walking back to the parking lot, you just kind of meander through the food court, and when you do, you smell the cinnamon rolls at Cinnabon. And you want to pray, lead me not into temptation, but it's too late for that prayer because you're already in temptation. You think, man, those, that smells good. I know what those taste like. I would love a cinnamon roll. And your friend says to you, hey, how about us go by Cinnabon? Because your friend's not on a diet. And your friend says, how about we go by Cinnabon and get a cinnamon? No, look, I'm on a diet. I, I really, I'm trying to lay, lay low on those cars. And she says to you, well, why don't we just half the thing? We'll just half the cinnamon roll. I mean, she's the devil in the flesh, right? That's what. And she says, look, we've got to live. We have to live in this world, you know, and, and, and you're just a half a cinnamon roll. So you give in to it. You go over, and she eats half, and you eat half, and she goes her way, and you go yours. She's happy as she can be because, again, she's not on a diet. She had made a commitment not to eat that stuff, but you have. And now you have gone against your commitment, and the whole way home, you're kicking yourself, and you're thinking, man, I never should have done that. Now, see, that's how sin should be in the life of a believer. You have a desire not to do it. You made a commitment not to do it. 
Sometimes you slip up and do it, but after you do it, you feel bad. If that, if that describes you, you know what you are? You're a normal, healthy Christian. But if you eat a cinnamon roll every day, you're not saved, right? You're not saved. I mean, if you take that analogy out of the cinnamon roll and put it into your life and you say, you know what, every day is my lifestyle. I do what I ought not to do. I do what I know I shouldn't do. I just keep doing it. And I don't feel badly about it at all. And it doesn't bother me at all. You have to ask yourself this question. How in the world could the Holy Spirit really be in you and you not have any more desire than that to live a holy life? Do you have a desire to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Won't you pray with me now? Just say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I ask you to come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. In your name I pray, amen. For those of you who have prayed to receive Christ as your Savior today, please let us know by sending an email to info at peacebybelieving.org. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.